rise, please. Please be seated. Thank you. I sneaked in a camera. We are gathered here today. Please, no cameras now. Could we hold off photos until the end of the ceremony? Thank you. Uh, we are gathered here today. No. Uh, where is she going? Don't. Good shape, too. Maggie! No, Maggie! Where do you think she's going? Oh, wherever it is, she'll be there by 10.30 tomorrow. Well, good morning again and welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Eli, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Ankeny campus. Uh, we're in the middle of a message series that we've been in for quite a few weeks now, Ten Commandments in Nine Weeks. And for me, this message series has been very impactful. There have been things that, um, you know, if you feel like you've heard everything you could possibly hear about the Ten Commandments, uh, for me, I've learned something brand new every single week. So um, if you wanted to get caught up or if you're new for the first time, welcome. You can find all of our messages on podcast and YouTube and all that good stuff uh, and to really pull some things out of there. We've reached the point in the message series in the Ten Commandments where to me, it feels like we're getting to the more uh, practical or the particular commandments. You know, it starts off with the big ideas of, of who God is and how to worship Him, how to, how to interact with this eternal God. And now it gets to where we are a little bit more practical, how we interact with other people. And so today we're in the, the seventh of the Ten Commandments. It's up on the screen. This is Exodus 20, verse 14. It's up on your screen. Don't commit adultery. Now, I'm not a statistician. Um, I definitely don't want a show of hands. This is not the sermon to raise hands during. Um, but I'd be willing to bet that if I asked around to, you know, 
everybody in our church, whether or not you agree that this is a, a good idea, um, that, that not committing adultery, that uh, not having an affair with somebody other than your spouse is a good idea, I'm fairly confident that 100% of us would already agree, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's about right. I'm not sure anybody's arguing for adultery. Now, I know it's politics season, so we're arguing all kinds of crazy things. If you would like to argue that, please just set up a time to meet with me later because that would be a much longer, more interesting conversation. But instead of spending the next half hour, 40 minutes, or however long we have talking about something that I feel like we're generally all on the same page about, I thought we could look at this a little bit differently and then see what are these Ten Commandments? What is this list really all about? How can we view it? If you were around when David Letterman hosted The Late Show, he used to have these top 10 lists. They were really funny, um, just lists about all kinds of things, Dave's top 10. And that's how I began to think about these commandments, that if you translate the command of what we ought to do or ought not do into the virtue that that command represents, what we actually see is a list of things that God cares about, 10 things that God felt was so important that he needed to speak about, to, to, to say something on. These 10 things. And so, of course, if it's, the, if it's God's top 10, what do you think would make that list? Well, he starts with, you need to know who God is for you and what God is for you. That's, that's the starting place. You need to get that settled, and that, that's important to God. And that, that the third commandment um, about not taking the name of the Lord in vain, what they used to do is you would, you would, you would swear on God's name that you were going to uphold something. So I, I swear on God's name that I will pay back this debt or I will fulfill this obligation. And if you didn't do that thing, then that would be taking the name of the Lord in vain. And God says, don't do that. You know, the, the, he cares enough about integrity, about us doing the things that we say we're going to do or not going to do, that he said, you shouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain, meaning I care about your word, your integrity. And the list goes on of the top things that God cares about. Human life, truth, contentment, honesty, family. And amazingly, marriage makes that list. Now that's pretty interesting. That of all the things that God could say, these, this is my top ten. Marriage makes that list. That's, that, to me, is something that we, we could talk about. Not only is it on God's mind, but it seems to be on your mind as well. When I reach out and talk to people here in our church and call or we just catch up, one of the things that I hear more often than anything else when I ask, you know, how can I be praying for you or what's on your mind, I hear people saying in our church, I need help with marriage or pray for my family raising children, all of these things keep coming up in conversation. And that's why, as like Boz announced at the beginning of the message, we're offering more things for marriage coming up. You know, marriage retreat this weekend that you can go to in West Des Moines, marriage class starting after the first of the year that me and my wife are really excited to, to lead and to, to grow with you in because it's on our minds and it's important to God. Now, I know it might not be on everybody's mind, right? If, you, if you're single this morning, you might be thinking, man, I really picked the wrong weekend to come to church. You didn't. Now, you're in the right place. Because if it's important enough for God that marriages be healthy, that tells us that it impacts more than just the couple. That, that when marriages are strong, our community, our church is strong. When marriages are struggling, all of us feel that, experience that. And what we see in Scripture is, is a definition or a, 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 an illustration in marriage that applies to every single person. 
mentioned I'm not a statistician, but uh, the Pew Research Center is, um, I think it's on the last slide, go back one slide, um, about the trends we're seeing in marriage over uh, the last few decades. And from 1990 until now, whereas 67% of people in the United States were married, that's gone down to 53%. And the number of people who are choosing to remain single has grown from 29% to 38%. Um, and and that, those percentages are getting steeper, up or down, the, the farther in time we project out. It, it's gone from kind of a gradual decline to really steep, dropping off. And my goal isn't to convince you today that you should get married. That's not what the goal is today. What my goal is today is to help us all understand what the big deal about marriage is. Why would it make God's top 10 list? What is so important about that that all of us, whether we're married or single, can appreciate and grow from and learn from? And, and I really think, I believe that we can tell the entire story of Scripture, the whole Bible, through the lens of marriage, of a wedding. God uses this to paint a picture for how he wants to interact with us. And so if we're going to tell that story, we need to start at the very beginning. Our Bible reading actually is Jesus quoting from the first part of Genesis at creation when God speaks everything into creation. God, God speaks for there to be light and light is there and, and God says that that is good. And then God speaks, he commands that the, the sky be separated from the waters, and it happens, and God says, that is good. And he speaks all of the heavenly bodies into creation. The, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the, the planets, the, the distant galaxies that no human eye will ever see, God creates those things and says, that is good. He creates plants and animals and fish and birds and all living things, and God says, that is good. And then he creates mankind. He creates humanity. The word Adam in Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word. It doesn't just mean Adam's name or it's not a pronoun. It's actually the Hebrew word for humanity. All mankind, Adam in Hebrew, creates mankind, humanity in his image. But the first thing God says about this creation that isn't good has to do with this creation of humanity. And notice that he doesn't say it's not good that Adam doesn't have a spouse or a wife. He said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man, for Adam, to be alone. It's not good for people to be alone. You are not created for isolation. You're created for relationships, for community, for deep community. In fact, I'm not saying something that you probably already agree. Again, it's a big part of why we gather together in worship every single week is because we know, we feel inside of ourselves that we need relationships. We need community. We need to get to know other people and we need to get to know and be in relationship with God. And so we take time and invest in these relationships because again, that's how we're created. But I feel like one of the reasons why marriage has taken such a hit in recent decades where people are, are no longer buying into that institution or that practice is how we've come to define this word relationship. When I say relationship, what comes to your mind? You know, is it that, you know, we know each other's name? Maybe a couple of details about each other's life or that, um, you know, we just check in every once in a while. And that's really, I think, how we've come to define a relationship. Knowing a couple of things about each other. That's not actually what God has in mind for human relationships. In fact, the word in Hebrew that he uses to know somebody and the word that he uses about what he knows us to be, how God knows us, is the word yada. This Hebrew word shows up over 50 times just in the book of Genesis alone. 
about how intimately God knows us and his desire for this kind of a relationship. In fact, the word yada is used when it says that Adam knew Eve and they conceived and they bore a son. And to keep this PG, I'll let you fill in the blank for what kind of knowing that implies. But that's what relationship God wants between a husband and a wife. And it's reserved for that, that kind of deep, intimate knowledge. But it's also, again, the way that God describes his knowledge of us and his desire for us to know him. Every fiber of our being, the core of who we are, God knows you and wants that kind of intimate relationship with you. God doesn't want just a surface relationship. He wants to invest in you the way a husband or a wife invests in their spouse. That's his picture. In fact, he calls himself the groom and this world, his people, are his bride. So it's not good for man to be alone, and God then creates Eve. He, he, he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he takes one of his ribs, and he makes Eve. And, and when Adam wakes up and he meets his wife for the very first time, Adam speaks the very first wedding vows in, in all of recorded human history. He says to Eve, you are now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You might read that and think he's just speaking, you know, literally what has happened. God has taken flesh and bone and made her, and there's a little bit of that. But actually, what Adam is saying here is, in the original language, is is a poem. Adam is so overcome with romantic feelings for this woman who he gets to know that poetry comes out. Guys, you need to learn poetry for your relationships. Not joking. Like, get really good at describing artfully the way that you feel about your, your spouse. This is a poem in Hebrew. Now, bone in in the Hebrew language would communicate strength. It makes sense, right? And flesh throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, has always communicated what? Weakness. So what is Adam saying here in these wedding vows? What he's saying is that where you are strong and where I am strong, we're going to share that together. That our triumphs, our celebrations, the things that go well, that's for both of us. And our weaknesses, the the places in our life where we are in despair, where we have failed. If one of us is there, then both of us are there. That we share our strengths and weaknesses together, that we are one flesh. That, that, That if one of us is celebrating, then both of us are celebrating. That if one of us is grieving, both of us are grieving. If one is in pain, then that other person experiences the same level of pain and brokenness. Just the same as they would celebrate their highest highs, they'll celebrate and and grieve and and lament their lowest lows. Together, we are together in our strengths and our weaknesses. We are one flesh. And almost immediately, that wedding vow that Adam speaks comes under challenge, gets challenged almost right away. Because God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And actually, God's first commandment to people, to humanity, is one of permission God actually says to them before he says anything else, eat freely. I made this for you. This whole thing I I made because I love you. Eat freely, except, and he qualifies one thing, don't eat from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because as soon as you do, you will start to die. You will become mortal. So one day, Eve is alone. Adam isn't with her, and that's exactly where God said was not good. It's not good for people to be alone. And Eve is eating a meal by herself. And the serpent comes and speaks to her and says, actually, you won't die. You'll become like God. Sin enters the world when a spouse is eating a meal by themselves. 
Now, I'm not a big tips and tricks kind of a guy when it comes to marriage. Marriages are unique. Your relationship is unique. The things that have worked for me and my wife won't necessarily work for you. I get that. But people have been doing more and more research over the years, especially lately, about the importance of families sharing meals together. It turns out that across all demographics, again, this is the Pew Research Center, across all demographics, a majority of families eat fewer than three meals a week together. Most families don't hit that mark. Oftentimes, even the meals they eat together are not at a table. And so they've been doing more and more research about what would it look like for a family to eat more than three times a week together? What might that do? And the National Center for Addiction and Substance Abuse did that research. And they found over time that families that eat more than three times a week together around a table experience less obesity in their family, healthier food habits, better academic outcomes for their children, better relationships between spouses and parents and kids, and their children are less likely to engage in risky behaviors like drugs, alcohol, and sexual activity. So, if you want a stronger marriage, if you want a stronger family, stop eating alone. Sin enters the world when Eve is eating by herself. Commit to making time to eat meals together freely, to enjoy that kind of, again, depth of relationship, the community that we are created to experience with our family. Make time for that. It's going to make your marriage stronger. Because there's a moment when Eve eats this fruit. She's by herself and Adam isn't there. She has eaten it and her eyes are opened. Uh, she becomes embarrassed, ashamed of her nakedness. Sexuality is the first thing that gets broken in the Garden of Eden. The very first thing that happens is they are ashamed of their nakedness. But Adam has not yet eaten this fruit. So there's a moment in time when bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh has fallen. She is mortal. She is going to die. And yet he still has this perfect eternal relationship, immortal with God, his father, who loves him and who knows him. And what is Adam going to do? Adam, I think, has a choice to make. Is he going to commit to these wedding vows? Is he going to continue to remain in this relationship that she has now fallen to the lowest of low? Is he going to go there with her? And he, he makes that choice. Adam chooses to lay down his life for his bride. And the rest of the story of the Bible is that story of God, our Father, working to restore that relationship that we had in the Garden of Eden, our groom coming to his people, the bride, laying down his life for us so that we can finally be restored in that eternal relationship. That's the rest of the story of Scripture. This grand union between God and people and him pursuing us with his love. In fact, that's where the Ten Commandments actually come from. So God has liberated his people, his bride, from slavery in Egypt. And they're wandering in the desert and he gives this law. The Ten Commandments are part of it in Exodus chapter 20. But actually, the Hebrew word for commandment doesn't show up anywhere in that text. We, we've attached that label in English to it. What it actually says in, in, in chapter 20, verse 1, is that God gave these ten words. Dabar is the Hebrew word that's in that first verse. And Jewish people today who, who read this as their Bible, they call these the Decalogue or the ten words or the ten promises of God. It's very interesting. 
like we translated a top 10 list from rules to virtues, what is really going on here is a list of promises that God is making, almost like wedding vows, uh, of what a relationship with him will be like. All of these are in the future tense, what we call commandments. So you can translate them, you should not or you shall not, but you can also translate you will not. God is saying that if you decide to, to, to join with me in this union forever, to be in right relationship with me, this is what I promise will be the case for your life. This is what you can feel, experience, that in a perfect relationship with God, you won't have to worry about who God is. That's taken care of. It's me. And you will have rest from your work. Your families will be healthy. Life will persist and be valued. Honesty and truth and contentment. And God is saying, in a relationship with me, your human marriages will be perfect. It won't be a question anymore. Human marriage will persist. So these are God's proposals to us. He's saying, do you agree? He doesn't push this relationship on anybody, on you or on me or anybody, his people. What he's saying is, I'm offering this to you. Is that what you want for your life? Do you want to have this perfect, loving relationship with a God who knows you intimately for all of eternity? And if you do, this is our covenant agreement. That's what a covenant is. And time and again, God asks and the people say, yes, we want that. That sounds great. That's the best version of life that we can even think of. Perfect, loving relationships for all of eternity that never ends with a God who loves us. Yes, we want that. And they, they start to approach God closer and closer and then they keep running away. All through the Old Testament, the, the people of God get a little bit closer to him and then they run away. They chase other things, and God keeps calling them back. The, the clip from the movie that we watched at the beginning of this message is from a 1990s romantic comedy called The Runaway Bride. Um, I'm not particular. I like romantic comedies. They're fun. Uh, my wife and I actually had a really great date night watching this. I called it sermon prep, but we just had, you know, we watched a movie together. Um, the, the story, if you haven't seen the movie, um, Richard Gere plays a journalist in New York and he's writing a column and he ran out of ideas and he hears this rumor of a woman played by Julia Roberts from a small town who uh, has run away from or, or run past three different marriages, three different weddings. She didn't break off the engagement um, or get divorced. She actually made it to the wedding day three different times down the aisle and then just kept right on running. So, of course, because it's a romantic comedy, the two fall in love after they meet, and they are themselves about to get married, and you saw in the clip how, again, she just, for whatever reason, could not make it all the way down the aisle and had to run away, had to escape. And that's us. That is us. That is the story of the Bible, that we, God's people, are his runaway bride, that, that he continues to pursue us with his love, to chase us down with desperation on his face, trying to be in this relationship with us, doing everything required for us to be with him, to be known by him, and to know him intimately for all of eternity, and we continue to run away. So after this has happened a number of times in the Old Testament, God finally calls one of his prophets named Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I need you to show my people what this is doing to them. How this is affecting all of them. Um, you can turn in your Bibles, if you have it, to Hosea. 
It's a good exercise. Hosea is called a minor prophet, not because it's less important, but just because it's smaller than the bigger ones. Um, It's a little bit closer to the New Testament, so right between Daniel and Joel. And to be a prophet in the Old Testament, before Jesus, before the Holy Spirit, in every human heart, a prophet would be used by God to remind his people of his promises. That really was their function. Remind my people of who I am, of what I care about, of how much I love them, of what they need to do to say yes to this relationship. So he calls on Hosea and he says, "Uh, I've got a job for you. I think Hosea might have drawn the short straw when it came to being a prophet. Um, It's a very interesting story. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says to Hosea, go and marry a promiscuous woman. Some of your translations might say a prostitute. It's the same thing. And have children with her. So not just marry her, but build a family. Build a committed family unit with a prostitute. For, like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So what God is saying is, I need to show my people what it means for me to love them. That that, that you, like a a promiscuous person, have continued to chase after other relationships besides me. You have become adulterous to me, to God, by, by pursuing other things that aren't me. And so to show this people how much I love you, I want you to demonstrate that in a wedding, in a marriage. Whenever I do a a wedding um, at Hope, uh, or anywhere, whenever I do a wedding, one of the things that I like to say is that, you know, we're, we're often fond of saying, you know, this is the bride's special day, which it is, not diminishing that at all. But the reason why we do wedding ceremonies as a church in community with witnesses is because what the couple who is getting married is demonstrating for all of us is a picture, a glimpse of God's love for all of us. That's why it's so important for us to bear witness to a wedding, because they're showing us a demonstration of God's love. And so he says to Hosea, I need you to do that in a way that people are going to understand. And Hosea does this. Now, these are uh, small communities, this was at least 2,500 years ago um, in the Middle East, in, in, in the uh, uh, Jordan River Valley. If you were a prophet in that small community, people knew who you were. You were a very prominent person. They spoke regularly. You know, they knew where you lived. Couldn't escape anybody. They also knew the parts of town that were of ill repute, we could say. The brothels where promiscuous people would hang out. So I can just kind of imagine Hosea waking up in the morning, had his coffee, and talking to God, what do you got today, God? Go and marry a prostitute. Okay. Leaves his house, and he starts walking that direction in that part of town, and people are watching him. Where are you going? Do you have any messages for us today from God? <laughs> yeah, I do. Just watch. And he does this. He, he meets a woman named Gomer, and uh, she is a prostitute, and they do get married. They have two children together. All because God wants to show the people of the world, his people, that no matter where you go, no matter how far away you run away, no matter how many times you try to escape, no matter what you've done, God will continue to pursue you with his love. Even though you chase after other lovers and not catch them, the the, the lesser loves of this world that don't even compare to the eternal love of God who, who knows you intimately, who cares about you passionately, who wants life and life abundantly for you like no one ever could. Even if you chase other lovers, God will continue to pursue you 
relentlessly. In fact, what happens is uh, after a few years of being married and raising kids, Gomer actually um, uh, repeats some old behaviors. She falls back into her old way of life. She leaves Hosea and she returns to being a prostitute. So you might think in the story, well, then that's just it, right? That's, that's too far. That, that is adultery. And according to the law, that she should be stoned and the whole thing should just be over. And that's not what happens. Actually, in, in chapter 3, it says this, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go get her back, Hosea. Because, God says, you will love her as the Lord loves Israel, though they turn to other gods. That no matter how far away we run away, how many times God will continue to pursue us with his love. This is what he says in chapter 2. She, meaning God's people, went after her lovers and she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. If you're here today and you think that God is out to get you, you are 100% right. God is coming for you, not to punish you, not to make you feel ashamed, not to condemn or to criticize your way of life, but because he loves you. God is relentlessly chasing you down because he loves you that much. Because he knows that the best possible version for your life is is a life where you are known deeply, intimately by God and where you know him in the same way. And he shows us that over and again through scripture in marriage, in healthy, committed marriages. So in this, uh, in this movie, Runaway Bride, as the two main characters are getting to know each other, learning their stories, they, they reach a moment where they uh, get honest about some of the things that they've experienced through marriages that didn't work, and kind of why, what was going on there. And both of them begin to realize that they're actually missing out on something really profound. Let's take a look. This is Brian. Oh, Father Brian. And Gills, of course. Gill, yeah. And George. He proposed at a butterfly farm in St. Thomas. The ring was inside a cocoon. Mm, a little too silence of the lambs for my taste. But... Well, he's an entomologist. But it was very unique. And finally, Bob. Mm-hmm. He proposed during the seventh inning stretch at an Oriole game. Wait, 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 don't tell me. Scoreboard lit up with, marry me, Maggie. It was one of the most wonderful moments of my life. Highly suspect. What do you mean? It was incredibly romantic. Look, maybe it's just me, but, you know, if you gotta dress it up like that, it just doesn't ring true. I, I think, the most that anybody can honestly say is, look, I guarantee there'll be tough times. I guarantee that at some point, one or both of us is gonna wanna get out of this thing. But I also guarantee that if I don't ask you to be mine, I'll regret it the rest of my life. Because I know, in my heart, you're the only one for me. I like 
I'd like it better on a scoreboard. <laughs> so is that what you said when you asked your wife to marry you? Well, don't look so surprised. You got divorce written all over you. I'm a work in progress. So is that what you said to her? No, I think I said something very eloquent, like, so, um, maybe you and I should, you know, what do you think, huh? Now that's romantic. I'm telling you guys, poetry matters. You get good at expressing your feelings using your words. I know we're going to have tough times, he says. I think this is where the part of the story is we're tracking uh, God's interaction with all humankind through creation all the way up to where we are today. This is the part of the story where Jesus shows up. You know, God's people continue to uh, make attempts at relationship with him and then they run away. And God tries to remind them of what this life is and what it looks like and they keep running away. So instead of giving up, he does exactly what he told Hosea to do. He went and got us. He came and got us. The, the, the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came into our world and he calls himself the groom and he calls the church his bride. And he said, I, you're not able to make that walk. You're just not able to hold up this covenant agreement. You're not perfect. So, instead of expecting that, I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to where you are. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God comes into our world as a loving husband, chasing, pursuing relentlessly the love that he has for all of us, his bride saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to fix this relationship, to get you back. Even if it means laying down my life for you. Jesus is called the new Adam. And just like Adam in the Garden of Eden laid down his life to be with his bride, so too God sends Jesus, the new Adam, to lay down his life to be with us, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. That we are united with Christ and he becomes weakness for us. His body is broken for us. And then we are wed to him when we give our lives to him. And, and this is where the story concludes. This is how we get to the end of the story. In Revelation chapter 21, it's all the way back to where we started. This vision that God has always had, the plan from the very beginning that we would have an eternal relationship with God is the same as it was in the Garden of Eden, life forever with a God who knows us and loves us, says this in Revelation, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. It's echoing the Ten Commandments, the Ten Promises. At the end of everything, it will be the case that God is with us and that we are with him for all of eternity, that we will finally make it down the aisle, that we won't run away anymore, that we will embrace this love that's been freely offered to all of us from the very beginning. And then God says the party's really going to start. 
We will actually get to the wedding feast that we'll get to celebrate for all of eternity with him. That that's what the end looks like to God. The beginning of an eternal party, celebration, wedding feast, surrounded by love of a God who knows us, who loves us, who desires the depth of relationship that he says, I can really only show it to you in a marriage because that's what it should look like. And we remember that relationship every time we come to the table of communion because what Jesus was doing with his disciples was reminding them again of all of these images, of this whole story. He took bread at supper and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I'm laying down my life so that you can be with me in eternal relationship forever. So as often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took cup after, the cup after supper and he bro- uh, poured it out and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, the new covenant. The old covenant was the one that we couldn't live up to. The old covenant was the one that we couldn't fulfill. The cup of the new covenant is the one in which Jesus, God himself, has come into our world to rescue us, to save us. And so he said, as often as you drink this cup, remember me. Remember my new covenant with you. Now, that is what we say over these elements every time that we gather for communion as a church. Uh, Traditionally, they're called the words of institution. They're not actually the last thing that Jesus says over this meal when he's with his disciples. He's got a little bit more to say. It's up on the screen, Matthew 26. He says, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is saying, every time you do this, don't just remember what I did to save you. Don't just remember the death. Remember the life that's coming. Because I'm not, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to drink this until that great big wedding celebration that's coming, until I return. So every time you take communion, remember the future that's coming. Remember the plan that God has, that this perfect loving relationship that's going to last for all of eternity is on its way, that he's coming back. He's going to drink this with us on the first day of an eternal wedding celebration. And that party is going to be one to remember. And it's free and available to everyone who says yes to the God who's already said yes to you. So let's stand together and pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.